0: Luke chapter 4, verse 14, are you ready say yes? Yes. All right, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread throughout the whole countryside, and he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He then went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, and as was his custom, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it was written The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. And recovery of the sight of the blind to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We just read this a moment ago in the service together. But there's one thing we left out or that he left out that we read. What was it? It was a simple word, vengeance of God. The vengeance of our God. Why did Jesus... Give us the entire Isaiah 61 essence, but leave out a word that no doubt these hearers would have loved to have heard. I wonder why he did that. Do you think it was a mistake? Do you think Jesus just had an error in reciting back the, or reading back Isaiah's words? Or did you think there was some intentional purpose in everything that Jesus said and did in his life? Let's keep reading here. Then he rolled the scroll up and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began saying to them, now watch this close. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. If you're in that room that day and he reads this text and then he sits down and goes, today, it's fulfilled. I am what I just read to you. Now watch this. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But then they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Keep reading here. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what you have heard that you did in Capernaum. Now think of it this way. What they're saying there is, hey, do for us what you did there. Or in other words, show us some more signs or do some tricks for us here in front of our own eyes. There's a lot going on in this text. In fact, by the way, I'm going to have you this week go home and read Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61 and then come back and read this together. There's an interesting conversation taking place right here. Keep reading the text. He said, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is except in his own hometown. Now watch this. You got to hear this. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years, and there was severe famine throughout all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Next verse. And there were many in Israel who had leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet no one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus now brings out two stories stories from the Old Testament about two prophets who performed miracles, one of food and one of healing. He's saying that during those times that one was healed and one was fed, there were a lot of other people who weren't fed and who weren't healed. I wonder what he is saying here. Jesus doesn't misuse his words. Keep reading the text. And all the people in the synagogue were furious. So watch this. They have went from being intrigued by what he said to going, hey, isn't this Joseph's son? So now they're completely furious. He just drew the analogy and just drew the words to their attention. you, You remember Elijah? Remember during his day with all the hungry people? He went to one. You remember Elisha? All the people who had leprosy, he healed one. And for some reason, this portion is what they get mad about. Keep reading this. Then they got up And they drove him out of the town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is an interesting text. There's a lot going on. In fact, I could spend a couple hours breaking this down with you, but I can't do that because you need to go home today and I need to eat. Don't miss what's happening. Don't don't overlook this and just read through this. There's a lot going on. In this text, we see the missionary ministry of Jesus Christ. His mission and ministry combined missionary. And we also see those who were hearing this totally miss it. Is it possible that if they were looking right at Jesus and they could miss what he is saying, and even miss him as a person that we today hear a few thousand years later that we also are running the risk of missing what God is saying to us? Is it possible that we can be looking right at God's eternal plan on something and totally miss it? Is it possible that we can also be caught watching the wrong thing and miss the real thing? Jesus is talking here, and this does not come out like they thought. And here's why. you got to understand this. When you look at this text, there's an instruction part and then there's an admonition part. Jesus kicks off by declaring for them what his assignment is and what God's redemption within the Judaism culture looked like. Now, to put context behind this, you got to know what's going on here. Ancient Jews found themselves living in the middle of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was not favorable to Jews. Not favorable to the church. And so there was this general sense that redemption within the Jewish community and the scriptural context of the early church, that redemption was a combination both spiritual and political. Now, before I get ahead of myself, let me clarify with you. When we're talking about political in the scriptural context... It's not going to line up with your current modern-day American political system of two parties, conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican, left and right. That's not the same conversation. So please do not try to marry together Scripture with today's political agendas. This was their mindset. They were looking at this lens that God's redemption was going to come back and God would set them free from their oppressors. Having said that, in their mindset, the purpose of the political connection to the spiritual connection was for the single purpose that if they got Rome out of the way, that they could worship their God in the way that God had intended So there is a tension here and there is a clarity point here that the church, the body of Christ, should always, from a biblical point of view, we should address anything in the culture that limits one's worship of their God because that is clear in Scripture. His people wanted the worship and he wanted them to worship him. So the tension here comes out because in this context... They are awaiting for the day in which God himself comes back and reconciles and punishes their enemies so that they can go and worship their God. There was a couple ways of thinking about this. First of all, there was the first thought that says, hey, we'll pick up swords and we'll fight. And that wasn't God's way. And then there was this other way that says, hey, we'll just be kind of passive here. We'll just bide our time. We'll wait and let God deal with everything. And we'll just live under pressure and oppression. And then Jesus comes along and Jesus says this. Jesus says if you want redemption, if you want this uh, this restitution, if you want this transformation, then you simply start doing these things, which is where Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61 and Luke 4 come together. What he's saying here is if you want God's redemption to take care of those who have needs in this life, that God's redemptive power comes to the vehicle of caring for and loving your neighbor as yourself. That sounds like a scripture verse too, does doesn't it? So when you think about this, here's attention. The they want this freedom. They want redemption. They want their enemies done away with. And Jesus shows up and he says, I am here to do these things. But I am not here to proclaim God's revenge or God's avenge or God's judgment. I'm here to proclaim that God's redemption comes through the idea of taking care of those who have needs in this life. So when you look at Jesus' conversation. Clearly, he's establishing here that God's redemptive plan comes through caring for those who have needs in this life. The mission of Jesus Christ is also clarified here. Jesus declares himself as the messianic servant of the Lord by quoting this text. He is saying, I am the guy you're looking for. Not a warrior king, not a guy with a sword, but a guy with a towel and a water basin. A guy who multiplies the lunch and feeds the multitude. A guy who would give his life. This is completely opposite what they were thinking. But it unpacks for us some keys on being like Jesus and our own discipleship journey. Here's a thought for you today. If you want to participate in the faith of Jesus Christ, you must live with attention to and attend to the neighbor in need. You have got to focus and see the needs of those around you. Now, what's unique about this is the early church, this is how they built their platform. The early church did not build its platform by ascending into government positions. It did not build its platform by by wealth. It built its platform by simply loving their neighbor as themselves By taking care of the widow and the orphan, the sick and the lame, the early church built a platform on the idea of being the message of hope. They built their platform not by voting and not by picketing or rioting. They built their platform by simply saying, if there's a baby on the street left for dead because of infanticide, we're going to pick up that baby and we're going to raise that child because that child is in the image of God. Their wives and husbands loved differently. They took care of each other. The the system of the household was different, all because of the principles taught in the word of God. Listen to me. The principle taking place in front of us is there is a different way to transform this world. It doesn't come through a sword. It doesn't always come through a voice, but it comes by taking care of those who have needs, which are around us every day. Also, when you look at this, we realize we have to live alert to spiritual darkness around us. He's talking here about those who are in bondage, those who are blind. This was not a miracle service for healing of the blind eye in the natural sense, but rather a proclamation that he has come to set those who are blinded by the God of this age to where they can see once again. We also see here that we must be willing to proclaim the redemptive character of God, his mission, good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoner, sight for the blind, the oppressed set free and proclaim the year of God's favor. Now, i got to tell you this before we go any further. Though, his mission was spiritual and eternal before it was temporal and earthly. We tend to think of things as earthly and temporal. God thinks of things as spiritual and eternal. Let me give you an example of this. The Bible says you're better off to do what to your eye if it causes you to, sin, but to take it out. Better off to be blind in this life than to perish eternally. If your hand makes you sin, do what with it? Cut it off. Better to have a loss of a member of your body than to lose your soul eternally. What's the profit of man to gain the whole world but lose his what? Soul. So scripture is always reinforcing the idea that spiritual and eternal way exceeds the natural and the temporal. And Jesus' emphasis here is not just to those who are poor in this life, but to those who are poor in spirit because the poor in spirit people, they receive the word of God more efficiently. Because pride has not entered into their heart. Jesus' emphasis here is set prisoner free. This was was not talking to folks who are in prison. They're in the synagogue. They're not in jail. They're, They're in the synagogue. He's talking about spiritual bonds. He's talking about sinful bonds that shackle us our whole life. I'm a full believer that mankind should never enslave mankind for any purpose. Biblically, it's clear as Scripture. Having said that, we can be very clear about about natural slavery and how wrong it is, but let us not be indifferent to spiritual slavery because the bonds of sin enslave many people every day of their life. And the church should be clear that whom the Son makes free is free indeed, And we should proclaim that God delivers those who are bound by sin. He breaks the chains. We sang it today. My chains are what? They're gone. I've been set what? Free. That's the power of the gospel. Our mission is the same as his mission. You know why? Because a disciple is just like their master. Let me ask you this question. How many here today in the house, you would say that God's spirit rests upon your life. Put your hand up high. Okay, congratulations. You just signed up to be a messenger of the gospel. Because Jesus said before he gave his mission description, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for or so that. The purpose of God's spirit upon you is to help you be a messenger of the good news. The Spirit is there to guide you and give you the words to say, what about this? How do I I help somebody free from the bonds of sin? How do I set a prisoner free? Well, well don't go to the jail today here in Aurora and Naprile and break people out of jail. Don't do that at all. (laughs) Spiritual bonds, sin. Sin should be dealt with at the relational level, not at the organizational level. What I mean by that is this. It's very comfortable to sit in church and let the preacher confront someone's sin, and you just go, yep, he's talking to you, and that was for you, and you needed that, and I know all about you. (laughs) Scripturally speaking, sin is dealt with at the relational level. The scripture says, "If a brother is in offense, you who are what? Spiritual, proceed toward restoration. Sin is dealt with at the relational level. Somebody who loves you, that refuse to leave you in your trespasses. Amen. That's what the body of Christ should do. Don't sit in A amen when the preacher calls out sin, when you're quiet, when your friend sin, and you know about it, and don't say anything. It's easy. Just sit and let me do all the sin work. That didn't sound right. <laughs> let me confront all the sins. But it's transformational when you go to somebody and say, hey, I know what's going on. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to always be your friend. But I'm not going to turn my back either. And what you're doing is not right. And you know it's not right. It's not in the Bible. I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to talk about it. I just want you to know I love you. And I'm going to always be here. You'll be my friend. And I'm going to see you through the restoration. That's what the Bible says to do. We have a hard time with that. Well, Marty, what if they reject me? Okay. I'd rather risk that than to risk my friend burning eternally. When Jesus got up on the cross, did he care for himself or did he care for you and me? When Jesus laid it all out, when he gave his everything, did he do that because he was trying to self-preserve his reputation and rapport? No, he did that because he valued us more than anything else because God loves us that much. Listen, if God can love me so much, he gives us something to die for me, then surely I can talk to a friend and say, hey, you're going on the wrong path. Don't go that way. Don't turn that direction. Don't open that door. Don't have that conversation. There's a better way to live your life. I'm your friend. I love you. I'm not leaving you. And we're friends to this day. That's how we deal with sin at the relational level. What about this? How do we deal with the idea of people who are living oppressed? This week when we celebrate the life of MLK, Dr. MLK, he, he's, he stood, he, he, he took a stand for those living oppressed. Wrongfully so. And, and I think everything is solved at the biblical level first. The reason racism is wrong is not because of some social paradigm. It's wrong because of a two-word statement called imago Dei, which means in the image of God. Now, there's other things that make it wrong as well, and I don't push back on that, but the basis of all this conversation is the image of God. And once you drop the image of God, all conversation stops. There is no follow-up. There is no but this and but that. When you begin to realize that God himself made every person in his image, and the reason we look different and act different is because God is so vast and so beautiful and so magnificent, God cannot be contained to one anything. God is colorful like this room today because that's the beauty of the almighty God. And once you realize that, you start realizing, hey, Imago day stops everything. Imago Day stops killing. It stops all your sexism. It stops all your classism. It ends abortion. It ends everything because you begin to realize that every human being is beautifully fashioned in the image of the Almighty God. So, as believers, we should be defenders of Imago Day. There's other factors, yes, but it starts right there. And so Dr. King, he stood up, he said, hey, we're not gonna do this. I didn't live in his time, but I will tell you this, I will always stand for those in this life who are living under any form of oppression because that's what believers do. Because why? Imago Dei. I'm defending the image of God that's imprinted upon you. And the difference is between you and me Because that's how beautiful God is And God is expressed In the beauty of creation